Hello everybody and welcome to Volume 5, Issue 203 of the Cane and Rinse podcast. We know you like to play along with us nowadays, or many of you do, and we have some cool shows coming up in Volume 5 after our seasonal holiday break. We'll be back with Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. Following that, it's Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, just the first one, mind. Uh, Then Sunset Overdrive, an Xbox One exclusive. After that, back in time for the Street Fighter Zero or Alpha series. And then we return to Hyrule for the Super Nintendo Super Famicom game, The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. Head to canerince.com, as I always say, where there are articles and features and some reviews and links to our friendly and ever-growing forum, our Facebook page uh, and our YouTube channel as well. Uh, and you can also find the list of uh, all the podcasts we having up uh, have coming up up to issue 250 um, and the, the threads where you can, in fact, add your uh, feedback for those shows. Uh, another fairly major thing for this new volume is that we do now have a Patreon. Uh, it's simply like a virtual donation box, if you think of it that way, uh, in that there will be no uh, hidden content behind paywalls. And so if you don't wish to contribute or you aren't able to, everything will still be free and available. But... If you feel that the hundreds of hours of podcasts that we produce are worth some sort of uh, fiscal remuneration, you can now donate $1 or more, if you wish, per month, and that helps us keep on doing what we're doing. Anyway, you can find that at patreon.com slash If you do prefer something back, something physical, in return for any money you may, may care to uh, put our way, do remember to check out our shop where you can uh, support us by purchasing Cana Rinse t-shirts and bags. Each uh, each sale nets us a couple of quid, and you can find that at shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash Rinse. And please, uh, still some of you seem to be unaware that we do have another podcast now that you should also subscribe to. Uh, it's called Sound of Play, um, and you do need to subscribe separately, but um, if you like this, then I think you'll like that. It's uh, it's all about video games music. Uh, but either way, you can review, rate, subscribe to both of our shows on iTunes, Stitcher Radio or TuneIn uh, and get it however you like. Now joining me, Leon the Feared Cox, in this issue, we have Brian Tarrant the Crude. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joshua Giggles Garrity. <laughs> Hi there. Carl the Unkillable Moon. Hey, what's up, guys? And Ryan the Knife Heyman. And Merry Christmas to you too. <laughs> um, those are your orc names, just in case you hadn't worked that out. This is your spoiler warning for Middle Earth: Shadow of Mordor. Uh, it's 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 got a story. It's based around Lord of the Rings. You may be aware. Um, I don't know if it's a big deal to find out what happens or whether we'll even spoil it, but it, we might. So there it is. So this game. Uh, it was uh, decided early in the de- development that the it would not be like a, an actual tie-in. Obviously, it has a relationship with uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings films. Um, you'll notice that uh, Gollum within it is clearly the same Gollum from the movie, although play, played by uh, Liam O'Brien, I think it is, does, the, does a good impersonation of uh, Andy Serkis. There was a little controversy during the development. Now, I, th- I suspect that 
throughout our conversation regarding this game, we'll be uh, invoking certain other gaming franchises, such as uh, Batman, possibly Tomb Raider, and certainly Assassin's Creed. Um, and in fact, uh, a former Ubisoft employee, Charles Randall, uh, actually accused uh, Monolith, the developer, of actually flat-out stealing assets from Assassin's Creed 2 uh, to... Um, to use in the development of the game. I'm not sure, did anything come out of that? Do was there personnel that was uh, the same between those two development teams where the, yeah. I guess the properties would have migrated with, or was this just kind of a, uh, just kind of based on the look and feel of everything? I don't think, I'm not sure. I, I seem to remember some, at least someone being profiled between the two companies and the, mm. it was believed that they'd taken... Uh, content with them you know it, we've heard it before in games uh but and i know that obviously monolith said that they were confident that they'd actually developed all the animations themselves uh and that they yeah. were entirely original so i think it's, it's one of those strange things and it's a shame because obviously shadow of mordor is a very direct rival to assassin's creed in the style of game so it, it comes across as a little bit petty yeah, I mean, as we will uh, just about to find out, the the development team is a kind of uh, there's an element of the supergroup about it because there's uh, there's names you'll recognise from from another number of other productions. First thing I wanted to say, as a, a dusty, crusty old eight bit uh, uh, person from from way back, um, I often hear this game referred to as Shadows of Mordor, which annoys me because I'm very old. Mm. And there was a game called Shadows of Mordor back in about eighty six, eighty seven. It's an old one, yeah. It's it's an old one. It's a text adventure. It was part of the uh, the Lord of the Rings or Hobbit slash Lord of the Rings text adventure trilogy. Um, and yeah, Shadows of Mordor is that game. This is Middle Earth Shadow of Mordor. Mordor casts one single shadow in this case. Uh, any slip ups, uh, you can find us. It was it was a really strange sort of decision to use that name in regards because I was watching. I think the first time I'd actually heard about the game was at E three. Uh, mm. when when it was all showcased and i was sort of um i remember i was texting tony tony was uh unavailable to watch whatever stream was available and i was updating him on all the games and the name came across and it was you know shadow of mordor and it was one of those double takes of what like, and we that, had that that's a strange remake many years yeah. on that no one <laughs> yeah. was really clamoring for and then obviously you realize it's not it's just a ridiculously similar name and yeah. s different it was 30 years later almost, yeah. so I, I, th I think we can forgive it, but it's it's only people of a certain age who go, hang on a minute. Yeah. Uh, another mm -hmm. confusion that, that can reign is, of course, that this is by Monolith Productions, uh, who people will know from the likes of Fear and Condemned, not Monolith Soft, who will people know will know from the likes of Xenoblade Chronicles and Xenoblade Chronicles yeah. X, uh, published by Warner Brothers. Um, and the director of design is Michael DePlater. He did most of the interviews. Uh, he's uh, worked previously on the medieval, um, sorry, the Total War series, including Medieval and Shogun Total War. Um, and other things like Crush, Kill and Destroy. Remember that from the Command and Conquer boom of the yeah. 90s uh, and, and so on and so forth. Another uh, person that I wanted to mention um, in the credits here is the executive producer uh, Michael Forgy. I think it's I think it said Forgy. He's yeah. a guy who worked on uh, Gears of War one and two and Fable. He's uh, worked. He, I assume he did a lot of stuff at Microsoft because he was on uh, things like the Zoom Media Center and uh, Perfect Dark Zero. Well, Monolith um, had a connection with Microsoft as well. Sure, um, okay. with the en the engine tech 
Uh, they've, they've used uh, Lithtech for a long time, okay. probably since uh, No One Lives Forever, I believe was probably their first right. game that actually used that engine. And then they formed a, a sort of a partnership with Microsoft uh, over the technology of that engine to be used further. I, I don't really think anything necessarily came of it, but there was definitely a partnership and a link with Microsoft. Yeah, No One Lives Forever, of course, is a game that we've discussed and it's been suggested a few times that we cover it as, uh, you know, uh, late 90s PC first person shooter based in a kind of um, swinging 60s sort of almost Austin Powersy kind yeah. of way with a with a, a, a female protagonist. But there's no actual way of playing those games legally currently. They're not available on good old games or, no. or anywhere else like that. So, um, yeah, worth a mention, though. Um, but yes, back to uh, to Michael Forgey. Um, sadly, early uh, oh, the, say in the middle of 2015, uh, he was diagnosed with uh, with a rare and aggressive form of brain cancer. Uh, he's still fighting away. He's currently at home. I just looked uh, an update at there's a there's a you caring uh, page for him youcaring.com slash Michael Forgey so if you don't fancy giving to our Patreon here's probably a much better cause currently they're trying to raise $300,000 to um, support his medical care and uh, and the future of his three children so you might want to check that out if you've enjoyed any of his games in the past Another uh, big name on this production is Christian Cantamessa, who goes down as the writer. Obviously, uh, as as we credited uh, Ian Fleming when we did Goldeneye, we must also talk a little about Tolkien. But uh, Christian Cantamessa was the lead writer on Red Dead Redemption, uh, a game which we've covered in the past. So, again, there's that sort of supergroup idea. Um, According to the game's director, Michael DePlater, the story aimed to create a character-driven story so as to be authentic to the themes established by Tolkien and was written by Christian Cantamessa, who was the lead writer for Red Dead Redemption. Uh, Can I, regards, uh, there was just yeah. uh, one other name that I wanted to mention as part of this sure. team, uh, and, it, and it's Philip Straub. Mm-hmm. And this, this was an interesting one because I was, I'm never a fan of the game, but I always loved the art and the, the, you know, it's got fantastic art books and that's Guild Wars 2 and the, the Guild Wars series in general. Right. And he was the art director of both Guild Wars 2 and this. Uh, and I'm not necessarily someone who plays a lot of fantasy games. Mm. Um, I find a lot of the environments and whatnot of fantasy games quite off-putting. It's just not to my tastes. Mm. However, it seemed to be the exception, particularly with Guild Wars. And I just thought it was fantastic for someone of that ilk Um Hmm. That, that overlook that fantasy series to be leading up an art team for, for this. I thought that was really, really good. Nice. Yeah, notoriously pretty games, the, the Guild yeah. Wars uh, games too. Um, yeah, so uh, as for the Tolkien influence, we're going we're to hear some correspondence on how sort of uh, how, how that was handled, how strong it was, how, uh, how perhaps it, it was uh, weak in some places, but it's worth saying that several side missions... Uh, including A Knife in the Dark and The Dark Rider are direct references um, with titles being pulled directly from the names of chapters in the books. Uh, But Gollum, Galadriel and Sauron are the only characters from The Lord of the Rings to physically appear in the game. Uh, Bilbo and Saruman are both mentioned. Um, In order to prevent adding inaccuracies, Monolith Monolith consulted several Tolkien scholars 
from Warner Brothers, the company also collaborated with the Weta Workshop, Peter Jackson's design company, to work on the game special effects and scenery items. You'll certainly see that the the look of a lot of the props and the sound of the orcs in particular with their kind of um, over-exaggerated sort of cockney speak comes <laughs> straight out of the, the Peter Jackson films. Um, and when depicting the game's other characters uh, as established um, in the series, the company partnered with Middle Earth Enterprises, the franchise rights holder, uh, to prevent them being misused and to pre- prevent contradictory uh, facets between the game's story and the original story. So it sounds like they went to some efforts, but we will have we will hear from some correspondents later who don't feel they got everything right in that regard. And the score uh, is written by, uh, well... One, Gary Scheiman, who uh, will probably most people will know from Bioshock, um, but also Nathan Grigg, who's been around um, since the 16-bit days of uh, Genesis and Super Nintendo games. Um, but he also worked on uh, No One Lives Forever, uh, both No One Lives Forever's, I think, and through The Matrix. Uh, the Matrix? He did work on The Matrix Online. Yeah, but the I was Matrix actually Online. Thi- yeah, <laughs> I was actually thinking of Condemned Criminal Origins and all the Fear games uh, and various other Middle Earth related games um, that uh, that have been released from sort of 2011 onwards. Uh, so he was quite well versed in that. As we know, the game came out on uh, the first version of the game, the one that we all played, I suspect, the, uh, the next gen, such as version for PC, PS4 and Xbox One, came out in September or October 2014. Now, there was a PS3 and 360 version, which followed a month later, um, but there are literally no reviews on the internet that I can find for the, for the previous gen version of this game. What I know is that there was no Nemesis system, and I think we're going to end up talking about the Nemesis system quite a bit. I believe that it, you know, uh, things that you'd expect, like it runs at a lower resolution, I suspect it's probably more prone to frame rate drops and that sort of thing. But, you know, previous gen games managed, we enjoyed enjoyed playing open world previous gen games, Assassin's Creed 2 and Red Dead Redemption and whatever else. So, but I think, you know, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but I think we're going to talk a lot about the Nemesis system and, and the fact that that was such an ambitious kind of next gen sort of feature. I think I feel like the game would have been lacking without that for me. Did anyone, has anyone touched that version? I seem to remember, no. I, didn't, I never played it, but I seem to remember reading an impressions piece on either Eurogamer or Kotaku okay. or somewhere like that. And uh, essentially they were saying that without the without the Nemesis system, it just kind of boiled down to a bit of a run-of-the-mill Assassin's Creed clone, sure. um, yeah. and the, you know, I mean, they were saying they were talking about that having played the uh, the next gen version, so that's obviously going to colour your impression of that. But uh, it did, yeah. it didn't seem like it it really sort of stood up. They clearly didn't send uh, copies out for review, or if they did, uh, none of the outlets uh, really fancied reviewing it. So, and I'm sure that you know the vast majority of our demographic on Kena Rinse are people who would have access to the uh, to one of the three uh, current gen machines, in, you know, including the PC rather than the Wii U. Um, so that option is there. But but I, yeah, I'd say buyer beware if you you know if you listen to this show and think all oh, that sounds interesting, but you are still on 360 and or PS3 because it won't be the same experience. It literally has one of the one of the core features not yeah. there. So, uh, game sold pretty well, five million copies uh, across all five formats, um, which you know 
we tend to think is is quite a good number, although sometimes uh, publishers come out and say that it's not as good as they wanted. But I'm, it's I, all right, I, Leon. I, it wasn't Square Enix doing this exactly. Well. This is Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, do, I mean, who knows? I, I have no idea what they were expecting for this game. Obviously, it had it had the the Lord of the Rings link, but it didn't have it in the yeah. title. Um, and I think it was it felt like it was a it was a sleeper hit to me in the sense that I wasn't really that aware of it as it came forward um but uh it was actually jay our jay uh who's editing this very podcast who uh kept saying you know keep i'm keeping my eyes on this one because every time i see it it looks a bit cooler um so it's it's sort of interesting in that regard because as i as i mentioned i was texting all the games to tony that were that were being shown at e3 Mm. and i distinctly remember that it was sandwiched between a bunch of other games that i was really excited for before and afterwards and I think my text literally read, meh, another Lord of the Rings game. Yeah. And well, I just thought, yeah. it's, it's quite rare, you know, we we try not to write games off beforehand. And, you know, I am always having a go at the people for doing it. You know, guess what? We all we all make mistakes. And I, I, it was, like you said, it was Jay was saying, no, it looks really good. And I was like, what was he looking at? Lord of the Rings games aren't good. They're just distinctly... Well, average. That that's that's sort of been the one telling point. Um, of course, at the time I wasn't aware that it was monolith, and even if someone told me it was monolith, I wouldn't have believed them because they're historically a a PC developer and b a first person shooter developer. Um, and mm. they, they've always they've always been a company that have worked on uh, the more cult, you know, uh, sort of shooters. You know, from Blood, they did Blood, they did No One Lives mm. Forever, Contract Jack, Condemned, Criminal Origins, Fear. You know, and they're all games that have stood out, but amongst very core uh, groups uh, that, that are very, you know, the, the, each of those games is famous for very cult reasons. And there's obviously, in more recent times, gone down a horror route as well. Uh, mm. So for them to suddenly do a movie tie-in that was third person was both strange and brave, given that they did uh, Matrix Online, and that game stunk the big one. Um, hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, without doing a full history because I haven't planned out for it, but um, yeah. yeah, the 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 Tolkien-based games have been a mixed bag. I mean, at the time, the the predecessor to the Shadows of Mordor game that I mentioned earlier, The Hobbit, was considered an absolute classic. You know, in text adventure days. Yeah. Um, the I remember the the actual film license games that uh, came out for the Two Towers and Return of the King from On EA. The PlayStation they actually, Two. They were good. They were actually well received. They were you know sort of progressive brawlers in the sort of golden axe mold but with lord of yeah. lord of the rings characters um you know high production values maybe not the deepest games ever released but as film tie-ins go and lord of the rings games go i think they were they were generally quite well and regarded. the two towers one particularly was a very good game uh, mm. you know especially given it was a movie tie-in but then we'd seen uh, the war on the north games i think they were mm. called on the, on the last yeah, gen. Sort of strategy stuff yeah and they were sort of okay for if you like lord of the rings but they were never received as in these are great in that class mm. uh, of genre so it, it was a bit out of left field because lord of the rings obviously it's gone in cycles we had the movies and it's always been famous you know you mentioned that way back as long as gaming's been going we've had the sort of adventures coming on through the uh, 80s but the, there was a real quiet period and then nothing really happened around the hobbit when that came out and then the hobbit trilogies come and then we got this uh, and it's obviously it's a tie-in in regards to being Lord of the Rings, but not being tied into the movie, uh, yeah. which, which is the usual route to go. So it was it was an odd one, 
but kind of refreshing at the same time. And obviously we should mention the Lego uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings games because they're there and they're, you know, they tend yeah. to be uh, reliable. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ryan, uh, are you a Lord of the Rings fan and were you therefore champing at the bit to play this day one or um, have you got a different story to tell? Yeah, you know, I appreciate Lord of the Rings. I've never been one of those like real hardcore scholars or anything, but I, um, sure. you know, I have a, a great... Uh, respect for the series anyways and i always appreciate the stories when they come around but uh you know usually i kind of have a hard time remembering how i come to hear about a game or how i i come to pick it up but this one i have maybe like of all of the games i've ever heard of and picked up like the clearest image in my mind of how this all came to Mm. be because i think i share this experience with mm, maybe like 60 percent of the people who ended up playing it or more in that everything kind of changed in like one moment in time. And that was, uh, you know, before this was released, I remember kind of seeing it at PAX and seeing pictures and posters and stuff. And it just looked so drab, like the, the art, Mm. um, of just the, the character on the box and everything. It was just another like, Oh, it's a angry looking white guy who's generically handsome with long brown hair and uh, walking in the darkness. And boy, this looks like the most generic thing that I've ever seen. It just did not do anything to really inspire my interest. And so I was ready to kind of write it off as being another kind of Arkham Asylum, Assassin's Creed cash in um, Mm. kind of targeted towards the uh, typical video game audience, so to speak. Um, But then... Mm. There was that moment when the reviews went live, like the night before it released or the, you know, couple days before it released or whenever it was. But right when that embargo lifted, like within minutes, Twitter, everybody was talking about like, what's going on here? Like there's something mm-hmm. happening right now and nobody expected this. Um, everybody were was um, hopping on and, and just kind of buzzing about all of the you know, 10 out of 10s and 9 out of 10s and 9.5s and everyone was not, nobody, it seemed like nobody was expecting anything of this. And so it was just this complete moment of like bafflement. And from that, like the, the like five minute window where it went from a bottom of my list, maybe if it goes on sale someday, I'll look into it to an immediate, like this looks extremely important. I must have this. And we should say, actually, that the average reviews came out across uh, all three uh, of the formats that we're talking about, PC, PS4 and Xbox One. 75 reviews were recorded and uh, the average is almost exactly 86.5%. So for all those 9s and 10s, there were there were plenty of 7s and 8s as well. Right. That's uh, that's the way the average comes out. But uh, but still, a, you know, uh, an 86.5% average is, is not to be sneezed at. Uh, so did you play it? Which format did you play it on? And how far did you go with it? Uh, be, you know, we, we finish every game, but did you go beyond that? I played it on PS4. Uh, I got it for Christmas the year after, or I guess the year that it came out. Uh, so just a couple months on from release. And um, I I did beat the game. I If I did any of the DLC, it would have been just the stuff that was packaged in with the I didn't get any kind of limited edition or anything, but I think even the standard edition had like a couple of extra missions just thrown in there for Mm. fun, just to incentivize people buying it new. But I didn't go out of my way to purchase anything extra. Uh, Josh? 
Um, I'm I'm a huge fan of uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, more so the films than the books. I I have read all the books, but um, I think they're hard going for modern readers mm. these days. They they are written like you know the sagas of old and. I think they're a tough read these days, which is why I'm kind of glad the films exist, because it makes those, you know, fantastic stories accessible to lots and lots of people. Um, and, and I watched those films when I was, you know, between the ages of 11 and 13. Oh, and me. yeah, I, I, I often <laughs> I often say that um, the, these films are kind of my Lord of the Rings in, in terms of your Star Wars. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, I got a lot of it's it's the trilogy <laughs> of films that kind of yes. went on to kind of inform my tastes in media and so forth and so on. And um yeah, I, I think you know, the two towers for me is still my favorite fantasy film um mm. of all time. I I can't think of a there are plenty of films that have come out since that have come close, like Pan's Labyrinth and and stuff like that but the two towers just has so many moments in it that uh, just take my breath away um so yeah i i am on you know i'm on board with lord of the rings so it might surprise you that i had zero excitement for this game yeah. whatsoever um and i don't really know why because if I had known about stuff like the Nemesis system, I'm sure, pretty sure I would have been at least intrigued. You know, not you know, champing at the bit. Oh, I'm going to buy this day one or what have you. But I might have been, uh, you know, oh, I'll get that when it's twenty quid or hmm. you know something like that. But I, I just didn't know anything about this game. And any screenshots I saw pop up on social media, it just seemed like. Wow. Okay, so it's Aragorn, but not Aragorn in a kind of generic kind of fantasy landscape with none of the characters I care about. Why? Why would I be excited for this? And and like Ryan said, you know, the reviews started to pour out, and everyone started talking about this Nemesis system and how different it was, and how it could possibly be a turning point for game design on you know new gen consoles and all of that stuff and it suddenly as you know ryan said it suddenly became a game that seemed important that i needed to play in order to keep up with the uh, evolution of video games as a medium um which sounds really hyperbolic i i know but um i i just yeah it it seemed like that at the time um and uh, yeah, I picked it up day one on PC, and uh, I completed the game. Obviously, um, I managed to do most of the side missions involving, you know, the upgrading of your sword and the bow yeah. and and what have you. I never completed the stealth uh, side mm, missions, exactly but uh, I managed to complete both the bow and the sword side missions. Yeah, cool, Brian. Uh, it's pretty much the same story as uh, as Ryan and Josh. Uh, I, I'm the f- big fan of the films. Uh, my wife and I rewatch them every Christmas, so we'll be probably putting them in the display pretty soon. But uh, no, I had, I had no interest in it pre-release. Never played any of the Lord of the Rings games. Uh, as Carl said, they all just a bit bland uh, and a bit average. Uh, and uh, but even seeing the preview videos, I know you said about uh, Jay looking at the preview videos and thinking they looked something special there. I couldn't, I couldn't really see it. And and again, yeah. it was only when the reviews started coming out and there were people talking about the Nemesis system and the um, 
the options and the kind of uh, opportunities that afforded, that made me think, yeah, I, I, I need to, to at least experience this. But I still hesitated. I didn't buy it. I bought it within the first week, so I didn't hesitate long. But I, I kept, you know, I, I kept, you know, re- reading these words over and over and thinking, hey, this looks like a game that, that should be interesting, that should be played. But then I kept looking at the screenshots and just thinking, this just looks so, like, like I would tire of it so quickly. Uh, mm. But, I, you know, ultimately I'm a sucker for buying new things. So, um, yeah, I, I put down some money, got it through and, and played it through uh, exclusively for a, for a few weeks pretty much. Uh, I completed the game and I did go back uh, and try and mop up some of the challenges and whatnot. But I tend to find in these sort of games, you know, once you kind of, you've, you've achieved the uh, the main objective, there's not much point in skilling up for a battle that never comes. So so I, I kind of I put it on the back burner after that. Which format were you playing? Oh, sorry, it was PS, PS4 I got it on. So I, I think mm-hmm. that was part of, partly the reason for wanting to buy it. I, don't, I hadn't had my PS4 too long then. And yeah. when they were talking about it being a real next, you know, a true next gen game in the way the AI was set up, I thought, well, you know, mm. my PS4 deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> cool, Carl. We've heard about your sort of uh, standpoint and anticipation, but I understand that you only actually played this recently. Is that right? Yeah, it's you know I bought it. Well, I technically I didn't buy it. Uh, this is where it comes in having a father who actually plays games. He yes. picked it up because he wanted something to play something different. Yeah. Um, and as as has been mentioned, the reviews were uh, very widespread positively, and um, it it was the kind of game he wanted to play. And I was a bit blasé. I was like, oh, whatever. I, I personally, I'll wait until it goes cheap. You know, I'd read about the Nemesis system, and I thought that's cool, but it seems like a bit of a gimmick. Can it really be that good? And like Brian, I visually it just it was very. I hate the word because I hate saying generic, but that character was so off-putting. The look of Talion, um, he was like Josh said, he's 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 Aragorn, but not Aragorn, and everything aspired to put me off this game. Uh, but we picked it up and I tried it out, and I played the first couple of missions and thought this is really good. But then I had an uncle come and stay with me, and he distinctly remember he wanted to come and see what Alien Isolation looked like, which had not long since had. Um, and he just tried that because the PS4 was free and I was on the Xbox One, and he went, ah, I'll try this game. And he was up for a four-day weekend. For three days, I didn't see him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was just he was just on Sh- uh, Shadow of Mordor on the PS4, destroyed one of my PS4 controllers because he, it, was, it was like, it was relentless play. And you'd, you'd pop down for a coffee or something to eat. you go, oh, it's good. Okay, so I watched him play a bit of it, and I sort of watched it to the point that I thought, I'm not ready to play this just yet. So I went and I finished it two months ago. Hmm. Uh, It took me about a month to play. It was more on than off, but I wanted to complete all the side missions. Um, I actually did all the stealth ones and left the bow and the sword Hmm. till till the end, as as is my favour for playing that genre of game, I guess. But I'm I'm up the whole lot and end up getting the platinum trophy on the PS4. But yeah, it's actually a relatively recent completion, and I did it prior to the announcement for the list of games. So it actually worked out well in my favour for Volume Five of Game yes, of Rinse. You're a late substitute. Well, you're not even a substitute. You're a no, late, you're I was a late addition. addition. Yeah, yeah, and it was just a case, you know, I've, it's very fresh in my mind. Two two months ago, uh, without the need or the impact of having played it for the podcast. So that was good. 
Yeah, I can't quite say the same because I played it a year ago. Uh, but you certainly, uh, you did uh, the Platinum card, but um doesn't sound like any of us have played the DLC. Is that right? I didn't know. No, it, it it's a little bit too expensive uh, for my tastes mm. at this matter. At this moment in time with so many, I mean, 2015 has been a ridiculous year, hasn't it, for, mm. for games. So it, I do want to get around to it, mm. but I wasn't itching to get around to it straight away. I will say one thing that's really annoying about the way that they did the DLC, though, is that all of the DLC content installs in a giant patch, and mm. all that the uh, the purchasing the DLC gives you is just a little key that says, yes, you're allowed to access this. And so it it burdens the hard drives of the people who don't care to play the extra content with all of this mm. extra space on our already pretty jam-packed uh, you know, next gen True. console hard drives. Uh, so I played it. Yes, I played it just over a year ago. Um, probably, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I was between jobs, had no money, but had time. Um, so uh, our own James Carter very kindly sent me his copy after he'd finished it, I think. Uh, and uh, on the PlayStation 4, I played it pretty much, yeah, nonstop for a week or 10 days or something until I'd done, I think, 95% of it. And the only thing I hadn't done was the very few last uh, dagger stealth quests because they have instant fail states and I hate stealthy bits with instant fail states so i got most of the way through but uh they were just yeah just beyond my patience for that sort of thing but i did play it for 25 or 30 hours overall anyway and very much completed it other than those so we talked a little about the scenario and setting already um and uh i think it's worth mentioning uh, talking of the supergroup sort of thing the voice cast in this is kind of a who's who of uh, oh. I, I, it's uh, of, incredible of 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 games voice actors starting with uh all the way from the top you've got Dwight Schultz uh, formerly of the A team of course who often turns up in these things he plays uh, a lot of the key orc characters uh, you've got Claudia Black, you've got Troy Baker as Talion, uh, he, you know, of course, of Bioshock Infinite and The Last of Us. You've got Nolan North as the Black Hand of Sauron, you've got John, D- John DiMaggio as the Hammer of Sauron, you've got Jason Connery in there, Steve Bloom, Brian Bloom, Jennifer Hale, Phil Lamar, Fred Tatiascori. It go- goes on and on and on. Um, but I'm interested in, because, you know, I played this game 25, 30 hours and... Um, I'm somebody who I do, in, you know, I enjoyed the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, I own them on DVD. I've watched them several times each. Uh, I'm not like an obsessive fan. I don't dress up or anything like that. Uh, I've owned the book since I was a child. But um, as good as the voice cast in this, uh, I think we're, we're coming back to those feelings of just feeling like everything was a little bit kind of generic. And I wonder if the I didn't feel like the the script and the fiction such as it is in the game was outside of the the nemesis system and so on i didn't find it inspirationally lord of the ringsy it no. felt i think the voice acting is solid throughout i just don't think the material they're given it, it's not bad it's just not very interesting um especially when you compare it to all of the events that are going on, you know, in the background of this story, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff going on, like you know, the the war in the north and the goblins taking over the you know the dwarf mines and stuff like that. There's there's loads of material that's really interesting. The story of this game almost doesn't feel like it justifies the Lord of the Rings license for me. Yeah. Um, it it could have been any fantasy world, any 
setting. Um, the, uh, in, in all honesty, um, uh, people often say about you know Batman Arkham Asylum, and I don't agree with this. I'm just using it as an example that that game wouldn't be as well regarded if Batman wasn't in it. And I, you know, I disagree with that statement. But I feel like this is this exact uh, this case is the opposite of that. Uh, where if you took away the license, it would still be a fantastic game. It didn't need to be mm. Lord of the Rings at all. Um, just, I mean, talking about the story briefly, I, I honestly, I I went through the story missions just to get access to more abilities that would affect right, the yeah. nemesis I mean, system yeah. um that was kind of my driving force was new abilities new uh you know ways of manipulating all the orcs and all of that stuff um it wasn't you know i don't i didn't think any of the story beats were particularly terrible or bad they just weren't engaging I like I like the story. I thought that I, you know, as someone that's not read the books, uh, I thought it filled in kind of an interesting uh, gap in you know in the in the Lord of the Rings lore as you know as I knew it. And I and I really like the the approach to storytelling. The way essentially for me, Celebrimbor was the main character. And yeah. his, it was his story you were learning about, and, and it was through this vessel of Talion that you were exposed to this story. And I, and I just like that. And I thought he, uh, you know, the elf was a was a very interesting character, and his backstory uh, really added to my understanding of the kind of the the, the process of how Sauron came to be uh, Sauron. And and uh, yeah, that that whole possession, the the two per, the two people in one. I thought was 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 well done story wise, and I thought it came through really nicely in gameplay as well. It I, definitely was laid the foundation for the core, uh, for how the game played. You know, there there are many games we play where the story is very much the core elements, uh, and I think this is probably where it, it differs from Assassin's Creed for me, where Assassin's Creed has the story actively going at all times. You run mission to mission, um, whereas this game was the open world combat nemesis system was the main uh, core and the story drove the unlock system to further that yeah uh, and that's why i didn't mind the story as as much because it was a bit of well i'll do this bit i'll get some more powers and then you know i can go and unleash on this big world um and i thought that was kind of refreshing because uh the the story was there purely to drive the ability to use the skills of the wraith and that of the hunter uh, and if you didn't have that story, uh, the Lord of the Rings story, then it would have seemed a little bit out of place. It did kind of necessitate a final encounter at the end of the game that I didn't really feel played to the game's strengths, but um, no. other yeah. than that, it was uh, it was pretty just, you know, if you didn't get along with it, you can just kind of ignore it for the most part. And, and mm. speaking as a bit of a Lord of the Rings fan, it does... P- you know, play pretty fast and loose with the the lore and the yeah. history of uh, <laughs> Middle Earth. Uh, for example, the Urukai should not even be in Middle uh, in Mordor at all at this point. Um, Saruman does later on gift Sauron a bunch of Urukai that he created, but if this is set before Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, Urukai shouldn't even be a thing. They shouldn't even exist. So that that's just me being, you know, uh, you know, a pedantic fan. But there are there are other examples where it's just kind of 
picking and choosing bits of the law and not actually paying attention how it matches up with the universe. So one of the things I find interesting, I, I felt exactly the same when I was first introduced to Talion, um, thinking he was, um, you know, he's a, he's a ranger of Gondor, he's an Aragorn alike. But actually, when you come to play the game, although he's got very much got that as part of him, um, when you introduced uh, Celebrimbor, who is this wraith uh, spirit character who has all these other uh, extra abilities, you kind of, what you end up playing is a kind of amalgam of all the fun characters out of the Lord of the Rings. So you've got Legolas's uh, ridiculous archery skills. Um, you've even got, you know, a bit of the brutality uh, of Gimli and um, and the sort of stealthy nicking around with a dagger of, of the hobbits and that sort of thing. I think, I, I feel like as much as anything, as well as, you know, delving into perhaps other bits of the the Tolkien backstory. I think they wanted to whereas the those EA games we talked about before, the 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 scrolling brawlers, you know, they they allowed you to uh or you had different characters of different sections or you were allowed to pick different characters, I can't quite remember, and you could play in co-op. But here it was like, right, how do we let the player have the fun of playing of all their character all their favourite characters from from the Lord of the Rings movies if not book, uh well let's kind of make one character who does everything that's cool out of the Lord of the Rings. And you you can reskin uh, those characters. They, they did sell um, character packs, which... That's right, that's really cool. You, you know, for uh, for good and bad. You know, some were really good outfits for the, for that character to make him more interesting. Other ones allowed you to play as... as it Was it Lothariel, um, who's the female character from, oh, the, that's right, yeah. from the story? Mm. Which... Uh, is how I started, and then I realised no, this is completely breaking the, the thin, the, the thin strands of storyline that actually exist. Especially when you meet her later on, but you can play the start of the game, or you can play yeah. as the Dark Ranger and stuff. Which, mm. if you wanted to do a second playthrough, really good that they did that. I did like that, and and they gave um, as Warner Brothers seem to do, they have the uh, Warner Brothers Play login system where you always seem to unlock a skin or something for a character they did it with batman they've done it with mad max and they did it with this but um yes some when they did other skins for him that was cool when they did other characters that kind of broke any elements of the story that were there but it was it was an option if you didn't like the look of italian and i don't know anyone who does particularly like the look of italian he's very boring yeah, I had no objections. I mean, you know, it's like most games of this nature, you end up looking at the back of back of their heads for a while. Um, yeah, it was more about, you know, how interesting it was in the yeah. in the cutscenes, um, thinking back to Assassin's Creed 2, and I'm by no means a big Assassin's Creed player, but at least there was that feeling that you were playing this, uh, somebody who was charismatic and perhaps slightly to be, slightly likely to be unpredictable, whereas, you know, this, this kind of... Um, this, yeah, the the developers said that he was more like Boromir, but yeah, he was, was he say very he was much. Boromir. Yeah, that, that's that's what that's what that's what they suggested. But I always felt like I was playing Aragorn with Legolas's abilities and bits yeah. of the other Fellowship characters, kind of thrown in. But again, that comes back to your comment, Brian, about uh, about the Wraith. You know, having this character with you at all times and having all his abilities, it kind of opened up the game in in not only in in that sense of sort of having a slightly different feel to having just this purely kind of generic 
Lord of the Rings character, but also, um, as we'll come on to, things like your your movement around the world, because you had this wraith on your side, it meant that you could jump impossible heights and move at impossible speeds because you had this this kind of ghostly character basically giving you special powers like you'd expect in something like Infamous, um, whereas, uh, you know, Ezio or whoever else in the Assassin's Creed games is, and some people will prefer this, is limited by his uh, his... His almost realistic parkour skills and and kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, impossible off the, skills. Off the top but, of the buildings into haystacks aside. Yeah, okay, sure, yeah. but you know what I mean. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 for instance, I enjoyed the fact that that particular skill. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but you know the 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 fact that you have a wraith uh, that can basically stop you taking any fall damage means that you don't have to do the silly hay bale thing. You just jump yes. off massive towers and uh, and and land safely and zoom off on the floor below and. Um, and you even know, outside of the movement, you know, it, it that that wraith added so many more elements to the game that you'd be limited to. Uh, with, uh, sorry, you'd be limited without if you mm. didn't. Um, you know, he, he had some cool skills later on in the game. Yeah, which would make it interesting to see if they do another one. I assume another one's on the cards if, if this did well, and it certainly feels like it did. Um, whether they could go down the same route. You know, because it would be such a, a difficult story thing to replicate without seeming really obviously you yeah. know, doing the same thing. But you wouldn't want to take all those abilities away from people who'd enjoyed the previous game because they were so integral to to the you know the the movement around that world and the combat within it and so on. So it'd be interesting to see. Some things uh, we've already touched on this as well, and, it, and I think it comes up again in in listener correspondence later that. Although I, you know, I found this was uh, certainly not an ugly game, um, I, to my eyes, uh, and at times on a technical level it was impressive because there were so many orcs on screen. Um, you know, this was one of the first games where, yes, I actually felt like I was playing a game that probably couldn't have run very comfortably on on the previous generation of consoles, and I suspect that there are far fewer orcs on screen at any one time on the PS3 and 360 versions, and certainly they don't remember who you are and have different personalities and all that sort of thing like this version but but the overall look of the game apart from the orcs some of whom looked i thought looked you know terrific and and you're saying josh you're saying about taking the license away wouldn't have hurt the game um that's the one area where i disagree because i think the orcs were mm. cool that they were orcs you know that, yeah. that particular brand of orc and as imagined by Peter Jackson and his creative team and Weta Workshop and, and, and all the people who did the makeup and all that sort of thing and, and decided on those particular characters, these are hugely influenced by, by the ones in the films. Um, but that, for me, was a lot of fun, actually getting to play, play with those and toy with those, even, with, even outside of the Nemesis system, just the fact that these were these really nasty but almost quite comical-looking enemies. But other than that, how do people feel about the overall look of the game? I feel like it looks kind of like a uh, like a step in between generations. Like I think there have mm. been a few games, uh, mostly just starting to come out this year: uh, Bloodborne, Rise of the Tomb Raider, um, even Fallout Four in some areas, in some respects, uh, that do look like like qualitatively different from anything we've had before. Um, and a lot of that comes from, and uh, this is kind of one thing that I pointed out in the past, is that one of the things that this generation does particularly well is natural light. And so it's kind of like a little marker that I use to distinguish between uh, 
truly current gen games and kind of that last gen look is that the the light is generally going to look a lot more kind of just pure and and fresh and so this one doesn't quite like get to that level but i will say that there are a lot of like really nice additions all the uh skin textures in the oryx looks really nice the uh textures on his outfit on the cape and everything mm. look really nice and so even when you you know zoom in really close to a lot of these you know earth textures or textures on the characters like they continue to look really great and just the amount of of visual detail that they put into each of the orc characters and how that visual detail is reinforced by the different encounters that you have and they'll wear they'll wear certain pieces of armor that will you know mend war scars that you had given them based on you know what types of injuries mm. you had inflicted on them in previous battles like all of that is super cool and so the art direction is there yeah the environment i would have said is so it, it does it, when you're when you're actually over playing over the shoulder of the character i think everything does look really bland as i said before from the screenshots it's all fairly brown and a bit flat and repetitive brown and flat yeah, yeah but, but when you get there, there were moments when you get up quite high and then i sort of played around with the uh photo mode because there's a there was a photo mode in, in there oh yeah, yeah. and they, you added, get, they patched it in didn't they yeah, yeah and you can get some some really stunning looking vistas when you're up high right and you pull the yeah. camera back a little bit you can and you can start to see the texture of the world from that sort of scale mm. it, it's it's actually really impressive but it just feels like when you're actually on the ground that the camera is too focused on the ground and mm. you're not and and however they've designed and built the, the the world you're not getting enough of that background scenery that i think would have given it a bit more color and a bit more dynamism i i think for me uh what stands out the most is the animation so i, oh, I think so the art direction is good and i think uh, on a technical level the game is good but the animation is, for me is fantastic um just the way talion moves and traverses the environment and uh, the way he engages enemies in combat is great um i but the orcs are kind of the star of the show in that department the way their faces emote and and express themselves and the way they are in combat uh and and just the the moment that stands out for me uh the most in terms of animation is when celebrimbor uh dominates an orc just that whole animation oh. sequence where he just shoves his hand in their face says you're mine and the look of absolute terror on the orc's face yeah. is just uh it's so effective yeah they, they look genuinely pained uh, and in agony and uh the pure panic very very good um and and again consistent throughout no matter who you're doing it to and it's those kinds of things that that separate this game from being a run-of-the-mill open world combat slasher you know we're we're not shy on that genre um but in terms of the animation and the speed in which it all works and then you have those really cool um shots you know when you kill the last orc in, in a round and you may jump and roll over the back and then turn round and you chop the head off. Um, just cool. It's, it's just really, really cool throughout. Can't be a bit of slow-mo. No, uh, it, for it, sure. it, it works, doesn't it? In response to the comment about the, uh, the open world looking a little kind of bland and grey, um, they do reward you with that kind of second open world area about halfway through the game that has a lot more greenery and a lot more kind of that, that uh, 
like seashore type of feel to it. So, you know, it, it does yeah. mix up the aesthetic as you play on. I was in there for about 30 minutes thinking, yeah, this is great. And then I missed the original area. I don't, <laughs> it's weird. The, the original area really grew on me. Uh, yeah, well, in fact, you'll almost certainly want to go back uh, once you've once you've gone through some of the later stuff. Um, got some more abilities. Open up some. You know, there is that that element of the the open world, the areas, as in as in the the recent Tomb Raider games and and the the Arkham games that you know you want to go back with certain abilities to open up certain places. Uh, there's lots of lots and lots and lots of hunting and quests and little mini things to do and pick up and explore for for gains. Um, if you like that sort of thing, some people do, some people don't. Some people don't like the busy work in these open worlds. I get. For me, I get horribly hooked on it, even though I'm not necessarily loving it. <laughs> it's like it's just a. I, I try not to play too many of these games because I I find them yeah burnout. I yeah, find the burnout, burnout horrific. You know, and some yeah. some games do that really well, like Tomb Raider. Um, I think is for me the best at going back to other areas. Some do it awfully. I think this one works somewhere in between. But I'm the kind of person that when I'm in an area, I'll do everything I possibly can, and I think a lot of burnout. It comes as a result of that. So yeah. I think when I got to the second area, I only had to come back to the first area for two missions and they were at the end game. And one of the things that enhanced the uh, those moments you were just talking about, Carl, uh, as well for me uh, a long way were the, the, the sounds of, of battle, the sounds of combat, not only those voices we talked about, but also the, uh, the sound of uh, the, the very crisp sound of um, blade on orc flesh yeah. and all that sort of <laughs> thing. Um, I don't remember too much else about the sound design. I, I suspect it was again solid and, and more than competent throughout. But my my abiding memory is coming away with that sh- that very loud shing 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 noise uh, through the strong. speaker of the PS4 controller. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of one of the yeah. things that I had issue with really is that the uh, the sound of the sword does sound very sharp and it, it has a satisfying sound to it, but it absolutely does not sound like you're cutting through like hardened leathered orc flesh like it doesn't okay give a sense yeah. of, like it sounds like you that. have like a really sharp sh- uh, sword that's just you know swiping through it just like it's butter and like you'd get from like a like a samurai uh, type of game <laughs> or something like that yeah. where you know japanese blades are made to cut through enemies whereas european blades and these ones tend to be based off of european blades are not really meant for that you but, trying to say um, our blades aren't very good ryan <laughs> no i'm just saying they're, they're built for different purposes um they're more barbaric yeah no i think you've got a point <laughs> for there, like but, stabbing um, implements but you know even uh even that aside like the it it does feel like satisfying on the level of uh you know the play but um but i think it would have benefited from having a little bit more heft and a little bit more brunt to the the striking noises i i think for me um I'm sure Leon was going to go on to this, but I think the audio direction really comes into its own in terms of uh, the use of music in the game. Um, I think the whoever came up with the idea to have orcs chanting the name of oh, the war chiefs so good. as they enter yeah. the scene that <laughs> That's was a, cool idea. a stroke yeah. of genius and and yeah. the fact that they you know they recorded every single you know randomly generated name that is possible for the game to create 
uh, along with the soundtrack was was just a great little touch and it made those moments feel important just having that name chanted in the background and, I'm and so I think, glad you mentioned it yeah yeah and I think and, and I think the music overall is actually pretty good um, I don't think um, it's you know one of the the my favorite soundtracks released that year but it certainly had some memorable moments associated with you know those those battles with the war chiefs i think uh, if if only they'd had the the rights the option to use some of howard shaw's themes though yeah, that would have absolutely. really finished it topped it off for me um it just put me into that world a bit more i always felt that they wanted to differentiate themselves from the movies in that regard absolutely and uh, in, in not using that licensed music and there are co- uh, there's one track in particular that did give me goosebumps as I played um, on the score. And I'm kicking myself for not getting the name of it before we recorded this. But it is, there is, it's a very nice score throughout. Um, but there's some really, really good moments. But uh, Josh mentioned the chanting of the characters, and I would have totally forgotten to mention it coming into this podcast. It's so good. Uh, you know, there are a lot of names in this game. Um, for the for these characters as they're getting ranked, and every single one of them sounds really, really authentic, as as authentic as something in Middle Earth with orcs can, I guess. But yeah, uh, like like a person of importance is coming, and they are worshiping him, and yeah, mm. it, it's just very good. It adds a bit of solidity to every moment when you're encountering someone um, that that is of a higher standard than the than your average enemy. Uh, regarding your point, Carl, about them wanting to make themselves stand out from the the films, I I do get what you're saying, but at the same time, you know, if if people have laid down great work uh, before <laughs> before your work, I you should use it. Like the Star Wars Battlefront would not be as mm, yeah. fantastic an experience as as it is for Star Wars fans if. That it didn't have those, you know, that those licensed tracks from the movies. That yeah. that music evokes so much uh, uh, in terms of you know those films and just positive memories. And the Lord of the Rings soundtrack is absolutely up there uh, in that regard. I think that music evokes so much. It didn't even need to be the whole score. Like it, you wouldn't need the Fellowship theme or the Rohan theme or what no, have you. But just, that that Mordor yeah. theme mm. that is so effective creating that sense of a looming evil would have been i think would have been a nice touch with these games yeah game. and the odd mention of the one ring could have the, the one ring theme and that sort of thing yeah um, just just yeah just little hints of it I, I don't know how you know whether they as it's warner brothers do they just have free and easy access to all that i have no idea whether it's probably more complicated because there's various film companies involved and and things like that but yeah it would have been cool um but anyway Back to the open world, um, because ultimately, uh, we obviously we will go on talk to talk about the Nemesis system. But actually, minute to minute, probably what you spend most of your time doing in a game like this, depending on how kind of focused you are on getting straight to the end, it is kind of rushing around the open world and you know getting into scrapes. Now the Nemesis system comes into play here because sometimes uh, Nemesis orcs will just be roaming around the map and sometimes you come across them accidentally, sometimes it's deliberate, sometimes you go seeking them, sometimes they come seeking you and so on and so forth. But of the 25, 30 hours I played, a lot of my time was spent you know, simply legging it 
from one place to the next, um, sometimes sneaking into a camp, sometimes creating all havoc, sometimes just trying to tick off all those little uh, boxes such as they are from from my to-do list. Um, and yeah, for the first however long, I reckon for three quarters of the game, I was having a pretty great time. Um, and it only came later in the game that the the busy work and the and the hoovering up those those remaining tasks got me down a little bit now it might depend between each of you kind of how much of this you did we've already heard from Carl on it but um Brian I think we talked before when when we did the Assassin's Creed 3 podcast you said you were somebody who can quite easily kind of just ignore all that stuff and it sounds like you might have done the same again in this one yeah I mean I I, I will if there's a gameplay benefit to doing something um, like if it unlocks a you know upgrade tier or something like that on a weapon, I will do it up, up until the point when I won't. If that makes sense, you know, I will. Yeah. I have patience for it until I feel like I've got enough um, out of the out of the upgrade that I don't need it anymore. I mean, I think mm. uh, in some respects, people might look at this as being a, as a negative on the game, but I think it probably helped me to do more of that uh, collecting uh, aspect of the game was the fact that you do start very early on very underpowered. And mm. the the open world, it feels very open in the sense that you can quickly find yourself in a place you really shouldn't be at a particular point mm, yeah. in time. Uh, and I think that spurs you on because you're then thinking, okay, how can I get more powerful? How can I, you know, unlock that particular upgrade because that, that will really help me in this type of situation. So I think m- more than most, I probably did uh, commit to doing the, those uh, side quests and uh, collect and collection missions. Yeah, my experience was certainly that I felt a little underpowered to start with, although not to the degree that I've, some some people I've spoken to did. And by the end, because I did so much of the stuff, I felt ludicrously overpowered oh, to yeah. the point that the end yeah. game was was kind of redundant. Um, and I, I kind of feel like... So, I mean, arguably there's a balancing issue there that they, they got neither end of the game right. But obviously it's one of those things where, you know, can they make it right for every player? I can't remember if there... there was there a, a set of three difficulty levels? I certainly only played it on normal if there were. Um, but did everyone else? Was that the arc of everyone's game? Feeling a bit yeah, weak at the start to feeling much, stupidly yeah. strong at the end. <laughs> yeah. Although I did go back to it um, this was a couple of weeks ago to prepare for the podcast, and I uh, just started a new game right from the very beginning, and found myself able to march into an orc camp and survive for a mm. pretty good amount of time. And I think a lot of that was just because like I knew what I was doing. And so yeah, I don't sure. know if, if I was, if the character was underpowered at the beginning or whether we were just unfamiliar with the systems, it's like going back into Bloodborne and being able to run through an area that you've beaten on a previous character like it's nothing, even though you aren't any qualitatively mm. better as a character. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though, because you should be, you should be well-versed in the systems if you have played all the Arkham games as I have. So, cause it, cause yeah, it feels yeah. similar, but it was, I think it was just a sense that you kind of got you got punished a lot quicker if you messed up. And certainly I, there, there were, you know, because the world was so open, um, mm. it was mentioned earlier that, you know, you you can find yourself uh, having a fight with some ra- uh, regular enemies and then a captain walks in and then a, yeah. another captain turns yeah. up and it can it can escalate pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah, that that's the thing. It, it just kind of drops you right in it. Uh, straight away like here's an open world do what you will there's a story mission but you you can just go and attack orcs straight away whereas the arkham games and assassin's creed ramp up to that challenge quite slowly 
well, at least the Assassin's Creed games, I think, ramp up the challenge quite slowly. Uh, the Arkham games do a good job of kind of building the challenge uh, at the beginning of the game. Whereas I think, yeah, the issue with this game is more that it it kind of drops you in the middle of it and doesn't give you much context or time to practice your abilities. Um, so it can feel a bit overwhelming at the start. Yeah, thinking about that difficulty curve, it was. Uh, I remember relatively deep into the game, you know, maybe halfway through of my time with it, I remember some pretty comedic uh, assaults <laughs> on orc camps where I ended yeah. up with hundreds of orcs trailing me yeah. in a kind of Keystone Cop style <laughs> while I'm occasionally firing an arrow backwards and blowing up a red barrel or, or um, doing one of the uh, amusing extra things you can do like pouring uh, stuff out of... Um, so was there like a boiling oil type stuff from above you, you, or uh, uh, you could stuff drop, that attracts bugs? That's yeah, it. you could drop the carcasses That's uh, it. Yeah, of the yeah. enemies to, to, hire the, to uh, lure the caragors. Release the caragors, yeah. Or you yeah. could poison their alcohol supply. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. That was, that was all good fun. Um, but it was only a few hours beyond that where I had the ability to brand that was that was kind that's of the, the key the possession was, yeah possession possessing enemies because you can do it within the first few swipes of combat once you've really powered up and then so you lure one over to you and then another and then, and then by the end you've just got hordes of yeah. hordes of bl- glowing blue-eyed orcs just marching around and yeah, you're pretty much the, the boss at that point why would i kill all these enemies yeah when i can just have them all on my side and make everything else easier so yeah. that, that was you know, it, that that was the goal in the end. Wasn't it, it kind of breaks the game a bit in the end because yeah, when, yeah, as we we come onto the nemesis system, but you can do that to the to the to the nemesis orcs as well, and that's when yeah, the the, the world is yours basically. Um, I will say that there's something kind of immensely gratifying about having an upgrade tree where every upgrade feels like oh, this is going to be game changing. Like this is going to be so useful. I can't mm, wait to get this mm. upgrade because it does really inspire me to do those side quests and to gain experience and to yeah, yeah. get all these points because I always want the next upgrade because it looks really cool and they consistently are really cool and really useful. But mm. yeah, it does absolutely bury the latter half of the game and just make it um, very almost like unbearably easy. And so there's a there's a moment, you know, just in the mid game there where I feel sweet like spot, the difficulty yeah. is, yeah, it just hits that sweet spot. And maybe if they made the enemies level with you towards the latter half of the game, so you had more abilities, but they were a little bit harder to kill. Um, it is kind of fun to do a victory lap at the end and be powerful, but I don't want that victory lap to be like half of my gameplay experience. And so, yeah, yeah balance-wise, right. it just didn't really feel quite right to You know to me. how some of the... Yeah, sorry. You know how some of the um, the Nemesis Orcs were, you know, uh, completely immune to certain kinds of attack mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, whether it's finish, finishing moves yeah. or whatever. Are there any of them that are immune to branding? I can't... Because I branded everyone in the end. They yeah, were all mine. So. Maybe... No, no, they could have had that yeah. in. That would have that would have left it so that, you know, you they could have made it so that at least one of the or 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 several you know several of them were were couldn't be made I, into your slave. I always thought there was one that you couldn't grab um, yeah and i thought i thought grabbing uh, was required for the branding i thought they went under the same thing but because i hmm. remember there was a couple that it's i hit thought. in the nemesis system that were incredibly awkward to fight. You know, mm. there the couldn't be a, they couldn't be stealth killed. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't they couldn't be attacked aerially. They couldn't be attacked from range. 
Uh, they couldn't be thrown. They couldn't. Oh, they couldn't be grabbed. Should I say? And I remember thinking, well, how do I? You know, yeah, I'm very limited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as the game went on, I think they 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 seemed to you know the 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 higher the rank ones, the the more they seemed to give them you know the the fewer weaknesses uh, they had. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and and it's kind of yeah testament to how we're saying about how you can end up so overpowered that even that became easy in the end. I'm I'm intri- yeah. I'm intrigued now that because I feel like there were ones I couldn't grab either, but I don't. My recollection of my end game is that everyone on that screen yeah. had blue glowing uh, eyes. As, as soon as they went green, right. yeah. uh, you could grab them you regardless. them or get them to right. low enough but, but you couldn't, you, yeah. yeah, you couldn't You couldn't That's grab it. them at any time before that, right. so you, okay. you You'd could have to grab fight them, them all up until that point. But yeah, sometimes the fighting of them was incredibly tough, especially when you got a few coming in, wading into battle, yeah. um, which was always annoying. But yeah. uh, of course, fight, fighting them had a purpose because... And I've just only just remembered this because there's a lot to do with it. It's the unlocking of the runes, and mm-hmm. then you put your mm-hmm. runes on your weapons and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of depth to the combat. Um, but one thing I just wanted to pay um, credit to was Ryan mentioned the upgrade trees, mm. but the whole interface in general on this game is very, very good. It's really easy to understand, and there are a lot of games where I've, I wouldn't say been defeated, but I've certainly felt like I'm trying to combat the yeah, interface, I know you, mean. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, again, you know, Sunset Overdrive would be an example of that. Mm. Uh, whereas this does one of my favourite things, where you're unlocking skills and it'll show you a video of exactly what it does, so you understand how to utilise it. Never understood why all games don't do that, but uh, does that very well. Uh, the upgrade trees are very clear. How you install your runes and whatnot, very, very good. Um, definitely deserves a lot of respect for that. Yeah, and I also agree with. Uh, Ryan saying not not only um, is it you know exciting to actually get an upgrade rather than it just feeling like another you know a a bit of a bit of something to slightly improve you it's actually one of those games where you're actually you'll be flicking between the two options that you've got a lot of the time you know if, if if it's certain resources that you can use i can't exactly remember how it works but i remember thinking do i want this one at this point or do i want that one what yeah. will make <laughs> what will make the game more fun uh or you know what will make my life easier maybe and maybe that isn't the way to go I, i've heard a lot mm. of people saying i think there was an i have a, I have a recollection there was even an article um released around the time of this game uh, from a guy who apologies, apologies for lack of credit for this because it's only just come back to me was suggesting that you limit set for this game and you don't allow yourself certain power ups and he was saying right don't you know never never choose this one from your skill tree never choose this one because this is when the game breaks when you when it when it goes from yeah. bending to breaking you know some of the some of the archery skills by the end of the game you can just slow time for such a ridiculous length yeah. that yeah. you're just kind of i mean it's it is like i find it enormous fun in a power trip way but those last 5 hours were the least fun five hours of my game in the end because I could go into any orc camp, slow down time for what felt like an eternity and just chain headshots with my arrows and just boom, 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 boom. And it's fun for a while, but ultimately you want a bit more challenge than that. I, I, I think that's it. Challenge, challenge is part of the fun of gaming. I think um, I, th- I think you'd be hard pushed to find someone who wants to play a game without any challenge. Yeah. Um, very rarely, certainly not in a, a long experience like this. And, you know, it it sort of where do you balance it? Do you do you keep the challenge there of having a game, or do you really unleash the power of this of Kellen Brimball, this 
all-powerful wraith and it sort mm. of goes well we'll go with the power of the wraith and then mm-hmm. you think you know it's nice to finally be able to play um a character that is essentially that so many bosses that we've fought in games over the years <laughs> that have all these incredible powers and you think why am i never a character that can do all this this game you kind of are so that was you know seeing it from the other side was kind of interesting i i think for me the the reason why i i find the kind of progression of how difficult the game eventually got uh disappoint was so disappointing was that i really like the stealth mechanics in this game in the early game and honestly in the in the later game there's no real reason to use the stealth (laughs) mechanics at all because you can take out absolutely everyone just by marching into a base um the 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 ability that i think is the most overpowered is the the shadow strike attack where you use the bow to essentially teleport towards the enemy which is powerful enough in (laughs) in of itself but you can actually chain those together and uh take out an entire platoon of orcs in almost you know automatically without any effort whatsoever Mm -hmm. and that was a shame because i i found the the abilities of you know using the distraction kind of calling the orcs over to bushes um you know the stealth using your dagger the you know uh the the attacks where you kind of brutally attack the orc and all the others run off scared because you've taken out you know one of them and and it's so awful that they just don't want to have anything to do with you i loved that that gameplay i love that kind of um feeling of being tactical rather than overpowered and yeah just towards the latter half of the game you just don't need to use those abilities whatsoever it's interesting. I've just been doing some uh, research on the fly and uh, there were no difficulty settings, but there's quite a few. If you Google uh, Shadow of Mordor difficulty, one of the things that comes up the most is people asking for a mod for the PC version. Um, and I don't know if anyone's done it yet, but I've also found the article I was uh, thinking of, which is uh, from Yannick LeJack on uh, Kotaku, who suggests... Uh, Turning off combat prompts, don't upgrade your health, your arrows or your focus. Only take two runes per weapon and no poison immunity. Don't brand captains or war chiefs unless you have to for the story. Uh, and so on and so forth. There are ways of actually making sure that the game make, gives you harder nemesis orcs and so on and so forth. So uh, these are all options, but you know, arguably I'm sure even the, the monolith themselves would say if people are having to do that, then that's cool that they want to do it, but maybe they kind of messed up a bit the difficulty curve for this particular game. It did give you um, an option to, to make it harder for yourself, though, I seem to remember, where you could... Uh, basically get a an orc to to go and tell on you to to its captain or its war chief That's right. so that they would then boost the, their their um their yeah. abilities the the poison immunity is an interesting one because i think that rune was a result of signing up to warner brothers play it was oh, yeah. Yeah. i remember reading about that yeah. so it gives you poison immunity before you even enter combat oh okay um mm. which i mean talk about killing a mechanic in their own game strange judgment um, yeah strange yeah. judgment yeah. allow you to be poisoned and then give you the immunity to it you know before you even jump off the first yeah. tower interesting uh 
the Nemesis system a little that I've read about that. It says, the idea for the game's Nemesis system first started when a team at Monolith considered themselves experts at artificial intelligence and wanted to continue to push its boundaries, wanting to allow players to choose and decide their story as they considered it one of the major pillars in building a sandbox game and to leverage the new generation hardware through innovation. Awful bit of corporate speak there. The team oh, yeah. wanted to create a system that allows non-playable characters to respond to players' actions in order to give the system a good re- uh, presentation. Everyone in the studio was involved in it. That's quite something. Uh, the Nemesis system was originally going to include the personal relationships between orcs, but the feature was later pared down as the studio considered it overcomplicated. Monolith drew inspirations from sports games for the Nemesis systems in which narrative continues even though players fail at a match. This method can prevent immersion and narrative from being broken when players die in the game. According to one of the designers, Rob Roberts, the system is designed so that players can become emotionally attached to the protagonist through gameplay drama. Um, absolutely honourable intent, and I and I think you know in in that sense, apart from the difficulty issues that we've talked about, I think succeeded. But it's really interesting that um, I should be thinking now about our football manager championship manager podcast yeah. um, recorded a couple of years ago. Now um, you know that that series is still still trucking on, and it's it is very much like that 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 feeling of a sports game where yeah, it's not just it's not just live or die. It's you've been humiliated but that foe still can is still out there yeah. kind of thing mm, yeah it's it, it it's really interesting because as i was playing the nemesis system and you understand what it is you know the enemies grow they've all got different um weaknesses and strengths and they change as they get as they rank up and then they want to come looking after you and as I was playing, I was thinking, this is cool, but I think people got a little bit carried away with it. You know, it's fun. Um, and then I finished the game and I thought, yeah, it was okay that it was there. But then I played something like Mad Max afterwards, mm. which interestingly is another Warner Brothers produced game. Yeah. But it doesn't contain the Nemesis system. No. It was done by Avalanche and not Monolith. Um, and it's obviously, it must be owned by Monolith rather than Warner Brothers. And that system wasn't there. And you're like, Wow, that is really missing from yeah, this game. Leaves a hole, and yeah. It, it, it's a shame because it seems more suited, in my opinion, to Mad Max than it does mm. to Lord of the Rings. But it was like a huge hole in that game. Um, mm. So you realise how important it actually was only when you compare it to the games that don't have it, which is every other game. So I, that was redundant. I, I think. I think for me what I enjoyed most about it was giving me this kind of blank canvas in which to kind of approach all these enemies in, in, in all these different ways. Um, the, the, you know, the middle point of the game where you've got enough abilities where you can be creative, but it's still quite challenging. Uh, that's when the nemesis system is at its best, where it becomes kind of this, political game for me of kind of taking over the lower ranker ones uh the the lower rank captains and kind of guiding them through the hierarchy uh helping them defeat uh, their superiors and then eventually using them to ambush war chiefs and yeah. and uh, and propping them up as the the new war chief um that stuff was fantastic and i i just it it gave me a sense of um 
what's the word I'm looking for? Agency over um, the way the world developed and and how uh, you know the enemies in that world reacted to what I was doing yeah. and and the characters I was propping up. It just it just felt like the developers were giving an awful lot of power and and trusting the player with an awful lot and and I felt like I was being respected as a player uh, yes. through this mechanic and yeah I I just had an awful lot of fun uh, manipulating these orcs and 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 yeah and playing my game of politics I don't think this is necessarily tightly linked to the nemesis system as in the sense that I think they probably could have used it in the 360 and PS3 version as well. But I like the penalty that they put on dying in the way that any um, of the captains that you had killed or the lower rank captains that you had killed, when you died, they would sort of repopulate, refill the lower ranks. And that, mm. that made a real sense of, you know, in a lot of times in open world game, the frustration is having to uh, respawning at a point and having to make your way back to the mission marker. Whereas this was a sense of you know really kind of undoing the 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 work that you'd done for a long time. A setback. Yeah, yeah. it was. It felt. Yeah. It yeah. did feel like it was. It was painful, uh, and you know as you as you got more powerful later on, it became less of a chore. But earlier on, certainly, I remember my first experience of the Nemesis system was just trying to take on a pretty lowly uh, captain. Didn't have any particular special. Uh, bonuses or anything like that special uh, abilities to, to, to defeat me but I ended up messing up and being taken down and he became um, a, a real nemesis because I my first instinct was to run straight back and try and defeat him again and I lost again and then run back and tried to defeat him again and lost and you know so he was ranking up and mm. ranking up and it was mm. really it was a, it was a learning process but a, but a really painful learning process and I thought that was uh, it, it was something unusual how galling is it as well when you lose oh, to yeah, an enemy yeah. and then you return back and he taunts yeah. you as he turns <laughs> off uh, and he'll give you that insult up oh, back again. Yeah. yeah. You know, I thought I, I, thought killed, I killed you the last you. time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There, are those, uh, there are those ones as well that uh, turn up who have killed friends of yours, oh, which is yes. a lovely yeah. touch as well. Um, and it'll tell, it'll tell you, I think, how... Yeah, does it does it give you some information about how they won or or something like that? But it certainly says, uh, you know, this 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 orc defeated your uh, yeah. your friend yeah, such and such, and then so there's that whole the fun of getting your revenge, your avenging your 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 poor friend and that sort of thing. Just another little another little nice touch in the game. Yeah, that made me smile because I did, I genuinely didn't know that that was in the game mm. until I was playing it uh, a couple of months back, and I saw my friends. You know, glancing across all the areas, and I, I saw a friend's game attack, and I was like, "Oh, what's that?" I looked back. I was just like, "I think I had a little giggle that that one of my friends had been killed." Um, but yeah, it, it, and you know, a part of the nemesis system. You know, for for anyone who hasn't played it, and we mentioned they've got strengths and weaknesses. Uh, you can actually get the information off mm, right. uh, an enemy as as you fight them and you dominate them. You yeah. can actually get intel on these people uh their names their location and their strengths and weaknesses so that was pretty cool being able to go across and getting intel on all these on the whole list of people mm. so you knew exactly what to expect um that that's where you realize the strength of the nemesis system and how you know how important it is to the core of the game because sometimes you know we mentioned the story isn't overly important other than unlo- using it to, to unlock further skills sometimes it's nice to just run around and and you know, take out some captains, uh, and when you know exactly what you can do, um, 
it, it, it helps. And this is uh, this is something. This really goes back to the the visual side of things, but the variety and uh, and also the relevancy of the uh, the look of the individual nemesis orcs. Uh, where they have names that refer to yeah. their physical traits, you know these are these are twisted, gnarled, deformed, uh, ungodly, uh, wizard-created creatures or whatever. I'm not sure the exact orc mythos, but they're certainly. Um, we know that the Urukai are kind of grown in vats, basically, and birthed in this horrible fashion. Um, and you've got these orcs who are. I believe there's one. I didn't see this one, but I read about it somewhere. There's one that's known as the brother, and it's got a conjoined orc twist somewhere on mm. his body yeah unless that's just someone trolling but um but there's lots you know it will relate to their particular features or their particular personality traits and again it's something that goes just a bit beyond you know we've talked a lot already about you know the things we like about this system but i think a lot of it would have worked even without that but the fact that they've got these very specific individual looks you know some of some are very squat and fat some are tall and skinny some have got you know different wounds and and things like this which which you can add to and stuff like that it's um again it just adds depth and and um, it adds a sense of personality to enemies yeah exactly. um, which all too often is missing in games very much so. um you know, certainly like this where you've got so many enemies uh you've got nothing really to differentiate them this actually does that um, especially when you want revenge on an enemy. Yeah, again, like... He's got a smug look on his face. Like you were saying, Carl, about, um, you know, playing Mad, uh, Mad Max after I'm thinking about playing... Um, I recently just played through Rise of the Tomb Raider, you know, and in a lot of ways it's very similar and I had a good time playing yeah. it. But again, that sort of, that lack of care about who the enemies were at any in, in particular point, they're just, you know, these are Trinity's soldiers. Yeah. Like, meh. <laughs> it's like okay yeah, exactly hey, yeah. it's so cool that any enemy can become like your ultimate final boss so to speak like he wouldn't be the final yeah. boss of the game but he could be the one who you you kind of quest against in your entire journey it's like uh it's like in mario the the goomba that kills you you find later has been promoted to like a general goomba and you know <laughs> taunts you as you step into a stage once more but uh, this nemesis system i think is going to be one of the uh, one of the fundamental uh, innovations of this console generation uh, kind of going Absolutely. forward in that it did allow for the creation of our own game narratives that even, you know, far supersede the narrative that uh, the written narrative that the game was trying to tell for most players. And um, it, it was so cool on, on Twitter hearing people's kind of big fish stories about the battles that they would go into and the, the, the generals that had bested them and these these people uh these uh urukai rather that they had uh combated multiple times and uh had lost against who they had the these special hatreds for and these special um kind of grudges against and it goes so much more further than you know the the bloodborne type of model where you know the enemy that killed you will be a little bit powered up next time and will hold your blood echoes but you know it doesn't make a fundamental difference to the game or uh you know metal gear solid 5 kind of plays around with the idea of of permanent soldiers within this open world but just everything since then feels so lacking in comparison to this that i can't wait to see 
this idea really leveraged into, you know, other studios creations and see this iterated upon, which hasn't happened quite yet, but I I feel like we're getting very close to the time period where we can begin to expect that. Maybe so. Yeah. The talking about the, the, the boss situation now, it was revealed to me on when I was recording uh, last year's uh, lengthy end of year podcast ramble that we do with uh, Midnight Resistance um, that I'd kind of missed because of what I'd done with my determination to own every orc in the game. I kind of missed this one big, don't you? You're supposed to end up having a fight with your nemesis with a capital N, like the one who has has thwarted you throughout the game like towards the end of the game you're supposed to either before or after the war chiefs fight um around then but i kind of totally missed out on this because i'd claimed everyone similarly the war chiefs i think like they were that that fight was a massive damp squib for me because of because i kind of owned them all beforehand something i remember something like that just not happening so i was really only left with the with the what i found to be rather uh, limp and um you know anticlimactic traditional end of game boss fight with uh, with with the yeah. with sauron's henchmen but i think i missed out because because i ended up so overpowered and so obsessive about about you know completely infiltrating the uh, the orc ranks now, in a strange way almost retrospectively promotes the style of play that Brian had of almost ignoring the side stuff and beelining through the story. Um, And it sort of promotes that uh, doing all the wrap-up post-game, which is something that I, you know, games can do it, but it's, it's, it's usually expected that the player would do it all before the, before the end of the game. Um, And it doesn't make that clear. It's, that maybe they could have focused the skills um, to what the game thinks you should have and then let you have more skills to just have fun with a nemesis system post-game, and that would have been a better way. Um, sort of shoehorned you down that path of uh, having limited skills mm. uh, and actually having that challenge at the end of the game. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it, it's certainly... There, there is definitely a balancing issue at the end of the game. Increasingly, though, I've, I've, this is anecdotal and this is my perception, but increasingly I seem to hear and read people saying that they're kind of, they are burnt out by these games with big maps with loads of little bits on them to do. You know, whether it's Assassin, whether it's the last two or three Assassin's Creed games or Rise of the Tomb Raider or whatever else or Riddler trophies <laughs> in Batman. I get the impression now that there are people out there who will play these one game, you know, this one game. We talk about this on the the shows where we're doing older games a lot of the time about, you know, you get one game and you play it to absolute death, you cane it, you rinse it and and so on. But a lot of the people who take part in podcasts like this and a lot of the people who listen are people who have limited time but want to play lots of different games. So when they get a new game, like a game like uh, Shadow Mordor, they don't necessarily want to spend 25 hours clearing icons. And as such, wouldn't it be, you know, if if they hadn't put all those little bits to do in this game that allowed you to, you know, to get so ludicrously powered up, obviously it would have changed the, it would have changed the whole experience dramatically because it would have, they would have, you know, had to limit the, the, uh, the, the character progression tree and all that sort of thing. And some of the reviews would have said, oh my God, it's only five hours long or 10 hours long. But actually a lot of us would have gone, wow, you know, streamlined. And, you know, if they'd they'd released a 10 hour game like this, 
um, that didn't have all the busy work that I admitted. I, I admit I did 95% of it. Um, I don't think I'd have enjoyed it any less. And especially, I think if I'd got to the the denouement with the right level of challenge still available to me, I would have enjoyed it more than the 25, 30 yeah. hour game. I think you've already highlighted the fact that it's lose-lose. You know, it, if if it was 10 hours, it's too short. There's not enough to do. What about the people that want to do all this stuff? And then yeah. you put all the stuff in and people go, well, it could have been streamlined. So, mm. um, you know, you can see it from... Yeah, ah, it's a wider it's an problem situation. with situation. What yeah. do you do? Yeah, it's the price of freedom, is, isn't it? As well, is you know, yeah. if you're going to give that that the player that much control, you're going to expect that at some point they're going to break it. Given how players generally play yeah. games, I think you know you, you've referenced before people, you know, writing articles about you know don't take this ability, don't take that ability. I you know mm. personally, I would never see a overpowered ability and think, oh, well, I won't choose mm. that because it might ruin my uh, end game experience. You know, you want to. You want to experience the, uh, the all that the game's got to offer, I think, and yeah. I think yeah, it's just if, if it's all too powerful, use it. It's you know, yeah. it's if the game offers it to you, uh, yeah. then then you're going to take it. And it, you know, I, I I get messages over multiplayer games of people going, "Oh, you're using that gun; it's so overpowered." Yeah, it's in the game; you can use it until the developer changes it. You know, then that's the experience that they deemed fit, and yeah. it's the same for any game. And I, I think games can go too crazy on these collectibles and side missions. I think a lot of people have seen the, those comical images of Assassin's Creed Unity mm. um, of of the of the the map mop up to do, and you look at it and you go, "Yeah, that that's a little bit silly." Um, mm. I think there's many worse culprits than this. I did get burnt out. Mm. I'll be honest; mm. there were a few too many, but it wasn't offensively so i wouldn't have said yeah i think there's there's better examples but there's many many worse examples as for for limit setting i mean it's a wider conversation um brian and carl you've both said you know you wouldn't do it you'd pick the most powerful thing and and i tend to be that way myself but i can see Mm. the merit in making a game more fun for yourself by potentially by not by you know if if there was a way that you knew you could make a game more fun i'm sure there are i'm sure there are good examples of a game where you haven't you know it's i guess it's like you know you wouldn't necessarily play the easiest difficulty setting on any particular game yeah i mean i, I never do no. um in 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 that regard uh but sometimes i'll seek a challenge so a game like red bloodborne or, or the souls games are interesting for that reason um Again, if the developer puts something in, they deem it acceptable to that experience. Oh, totally. So yeah. that that that's that's how I always see it. You but know, they don't. I wouldn't you know, use they don't a always... cheat code. I wouldn't. No, that sure. kind of thing. You know. No, no. I'm t- I'm totally with you. But yeah, I, I think it's you know it's interesting. There 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 are some really fascinating stories of people, for instance, who have, um, you know, who play Far Cry Two without any fast travel, without. Uh, if they die, they, yeah. they do permanent death and all that sort of thing. And, and you know, they, they talk about this incredibly intense and experience they had, you know, and, and yeah, well, yeah, I guess it's a case of, of each to their own. Just want to hear now from a couple of um, posters from the forum who uh, wanted to talk a little bit about the Nemesis system. First, uh, Glenn Watts, who's a, an AI coder himself. He said, so there's this one orc. His name is Hogger the Fool. He looks really goofy with a lopsided mouth. He doesn't seem to be able to talk. Whenever he turns up, he just sort of giggles a bit as his introduction speech. But I hate him. 
and never seemed to find him on his own in the field. He always turns up uninvited during battles with other chiefs. He's also bodyguard to one of the war chiefs. He has the trait, will not execute an unworthy foe. I'm losing count now of of the number of times he turns up just as I'm about to die, lands the blow to put me down, then walks away without finishing me off, chuckling to himself as he goes. I hate him. And uh, Max Stat says, it's pretty obvious that the Nemesis system was one of the game's main selling points. But what really made me say, oh, wow, was when I realised how well it fitted uh, the world in general. I remember playing a mission when I had to free some slaves from Orc Keep. To my surprise, while I was doing that, this one invincible Orc who kept coming back from the dead jumped me. Not only that, during the fight, another one who patrolled Keep spotting me fighting and joining in and joined in. Needless to say, I had to run for my life. It was that moment I saw that those guys weren't only a mission markers on the map, but they were doing their own orcish things. A very quick note on the DLC, because none of us has played it. Apologies, listeners. Um, but I did read that after the game was criticised for the anticlimactic boss battle uh, as uh, against the Black Hand of Sauron, would anyone among our panel today like to speak up for the Black Hand of Sauron fight? Would they be welcome back on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> of course. All opinions are welcome. But uh, yes... Uh, it, mm, no, 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 no. It's awful. It's it's three button presses, if I remember correctly. Uh, Monolith took consideration uh, regarding criticism uh, for that and made sure that the boss battle between Celebrimbor and Sauron in the Bright Lord DLC was much better. It says here, but whether they achieved that, I don't know. That's just uh, something I read somewhere. So back to the community, canarince.com/forum is the place to post your opinions on the game. You can post right now for any of the forthcoming 47 podcasts. I think that's right. Uh, In the correct folder. Dom's Beard says, I didn't like this game. I'm a huge Lord of the Rings fan and the combat style, Arkham-esque, I also like. So it was a no-brainer picking it up at launch. It just never clicked with me. I found the combat tiresome with too many enemies, the story passable, but traversing the world took far too long. But that's more down to me, as I never use fast travel. <laughs> Fair enough. See, that's an interesting way of somebody limit-setting a game to arguably make it less fun for themselves. <laughs> Possibly. Your mileage may vary, literally. Uh, Bloody Initiate says, A friend told me not to expect much of the story, and I don't really care if there isn't one, because the base gameplay makes me smile so much. There are lots of games in this genre now, open world action adventure where you prowl around in a personality free environment using a toolbox of fun to creatively dispatch mostly generic adversaries. I'd put the Arkham, Assassin's Creed and Far Cry games in this genre together with Shadow of Mordor. Where Shadow of Mordor differs is in that fantastic orc personality system wherein each captain has their own strengths and weaknesses. I have an orc in my game called Tars Heart Eater. He's afraid of fire, and my greatest joy is repeatedly setting him on fire, chasing him from stronghold to stronghold. (laughs) I love to picture myself as the source of all his nightmares. He's immune to stealth attacks, so when I set him on fire and went to leap on him, all I got was a fantastic close-up where he turned around and looked horrified at me before spinning back around and running like hell. What makes a good hero is a good villain, and the villains in this game are so much fun that I have much more fun as a result. There's lots to love about this game, though Tolkien nerds like myself will twitch a little when they notice inaccuracies. It quickly becomes clear that everything is in service of the gameplay, which works for me. Do you find exploding barrels and campfires kind of dumb in a fantasy setting? Fear not, your arrows are pure magic. So far for me, so is this game. 
Torakibble. So many interesting names, I never know what gender these people are, but doesn't matter. Tora Kibble says, I came at this game as someone who has little connection with the Lord of the Rings series. I'd read enough reviews to be interested in the Nemesis system, so I purchased it fairly close to launch. I never really connected to the overarching story, but as a world to traverse and engage with, I found this to be immensely satisfying. The movement both on foot and on beast has a great fluidity. The combat was never needlessly difficult and the Nemesis system provided just the right amount of engagement on a smaller scale to offset my lack of interest in the larger story. Also, gating off the map until midway through the game prevented me from feeling that overbearing sense of dread that I get when staring at so many other open world maps. Yeah, as we were just saying. Uh, back to Glenn Watts here. Mr Flavio says... The Nemesis system is ultimately what this game will be remembered for. Nemesis most likely started out life as a way to add a bit of variety to the boss enemies. Each named orc is, has a base character archetype based on one of the game's grunts. Then the game layers on a few visual distinctions, armour, war paint, etc. Generates a bunch of flaws and perks for them, then builds them a name out of a bunch of orky sounding syllables. At this point, we're just talking about a basic bit of procedural generation, not a new thing at all. Where the innovation is, is in having them evolve in reaction to the player's actions. Surviving an encounter with the player gives them a boost, maybe some better armour, maybe one of their flaws is removed. Sometimes they come back from the dead with new scars. All this wouldn't matter if not for one thing. The game gives the orcs the ability to tell the player what has been changed about them. They can brag about their victories, they can demand vengeance, they can point out their fancy new armour. They can have followers who loudly chant their names. They feel like actual living things. Imagine the newest Need for Speed game if the rivals you raced had nemesis-driven personalities that remember that time you cut them off at the finish line rather than bland, scripted ones. Imagine if the fighters in Street Fighter V could hold grudges and vocalise just what they think of your fighting style. In the end, Shadow of Mordor is a solid game made notable with the addition of some new ideas. I just hope those ideas take root. They deserve to. Thanks, Glenn. Well, you make games, you do it. <laughs> Off you pop. Uh, Alex Maskill, who is a correspondent and new contributor to the forum as well. Part of the extended Cana Rinse team. Or family. <laughs> this game is a great example of how one mechanic can change everything. For the most part, the game is okay if a touch boilerplate. The mechanics are derivative, the art direction is fine, the story is pretty much exactly what you think it's going to be, and not nearly what you hoped. But that nemesis system, man, the moments that the nemesis system creates, the tension, the feeling of an evolving world, the way it complements and complicates the existing mission structure, all completely elevates the rest of the game. The Ascreed Arkham mechanics are perfectly utilised, stalking after a target, the variety of options for combat approaches combined with the immunities and weaknesses of generals to create combat scenarios that feel far more varied than they really are. The Nemesis system really draws all the unfocused, underwhelming elements of the game and makes it all feel cohesive. That said, I'm actually not a fan of the branding mechanic. I always felt that it was incredibly limited compared to the wide array of ways to approach the more adversarial relationships with the generals. Bursting at an especially tenacious commander's head like a ripe tomato is such a more satisfying conclusion to an encounter than a flash of, yeah, they're with you now. I know a lot of people who thought that was the system that really took it all to the next level, but for me it constituted a refocusing of the game's mechanics, which ultimately wasn't as fully developed or compelling as what went before. If there were more options for what to do with press-ganged orcs, or if that system wasn't there at all, it would have made for a more involving experience either way. 
Overall, however, this is one of the few recent AAA games where I actively made the time to fully complete it, and I really enjoyed my time with it. Thanks, Alex. And finally, for listener correspondence of this nature, this is a late entry via email to podcast at canorince.com from Paul Snyder, a new correspondent. He says the Tolkienian gloss is weak. Shadow of Mordor's story is fanfic by somebody who has never actually read the books and is just working from a plot summary and memories of teenage Dungeons and Dragons power game fantasy. Despite being elevated by several small moments, mostly in the pre-game introduction where Talion is interacting with his family, what little plot there is exists merely to propel the player through the countryside, stabbing orc after orc. The game's salvation is that its core gameplay loop, running or sneaking, then brutally diving into balletic combat against swarming orcs, is extremely satisfying. The predecessor franchise to, to which it's so frequently compared, Assassin's Creed and Batman, feel very different during play. In AC, most of your time is spent in reasonably fluid parkour, traversing the city roofs and walls. Its combat is more measured, with a protagonist who must engage in careful defence against circling foes, retaliating after each strike. It also has a very strong mission-focused approach, where the plot must be driven along through sneaking and measured assassination. Batman's thuggish opponents instead are near-identical, steroid-abusing brutes who take vicious blow after vicious blow, yet keep bouncing back to their feet to wade in for yet more abuse. This gives the melees a quite game-like feel, where the player's focus is on timing the button presses, avoiding hits until the hit streak allows a special move that can actually finish the frustratingly resilient opponents. Much more satisfying are those few predator segments where the player is given a player is given free reign within a tightly contained room, but these feel isolated from the rest of the gameplay. One cannot stick with a single approach as you are driven into both arena-style combats and machine gun enforced stealth. In the gameplay of Shadow of Mordor, you are allowed to keep the feeling that the admittedly small world is open to whatever tactics you wish to employ. When you must deviate from this, the reasons are often satisfying. A particular captain has immunities to stealth and arrows and must be taken down by sword. The nemesis system is the true gem. It's somewhat rough cut, it's true, but the best moments in the game came from its emergent consequences. In my first playthrough, a poisoned crossbow-wielding captain took me down several times and quickly reached maximum level with immunities to all three forms of attack. He plagued me for much of the first half of the game, showing up in the middle of other battles, forcing me to flee. I look forward to the development of the Nemesis system in future games. Combat is enjoyably brutal, rather than opponents who bounce back with rubbery indifference to your blows. Your sword bites deep, ripping through ranks that are replaced by further hordes. Particularly in the early game, I was surprised to find out how satisfying it could be to use running away as a tactic, killing as many as possible, then rolling over an enemy to dash into the countryside. Or to terrorise the Uruk, the possibility of breaking their morale is a nice addition. Sadly, the combat loses its edge once you gain the ability to brand your opponents, and the game becomes far too easy. On a recent second playthrough, I held off gaining the branding ability for as long as possible, which helped to keep a bit of an edge. But the play is at its best when you are barely holding the line against impossible odds with skills that increase only slowly. I've tried the DLC, but both Lord of the Hunt and Bright Lord are lacklustre. You start with far too much strength, and the few additions to do little to compensate for the atrocious story writing. This is a game of its moment, an entertaining diversion with some nice technical innovations. It's not one for the ages, but I'll probably be able to replay it, or at least the first two-thirds of it, again a few years down the line. Thanks everybody. Great correspondence for a recent game. That's cool. And we also have a whole big swathe here of 
three word reviews from Twitter. Follow us, do at Kane and Rince, starting with Brian. Jesse Fook says, repugnantly sadistic, returned. Brad Galloway of uh, GameCritics.com says, didn't notice Nemesis. Must have been playing the last gen version, Brad. Sean Laborde, square to kiss. Oh, X on Xbox. Yeah, I just thought I should, you know, we should be format agnostic on that. What is it on PC? Uh, whatever X you if want you're using an Xbox controller, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> or you can probably map your keyboard. Oh, dear. Spacebar. Mm, Spacebar, indeed. Uh, Pietrick says, Oi, you maggot. Worker Zero, Orc Party Tonight. Ben Monroe, Die, Orcs, Die. Zen Anarchy says, Orc Insult Simulator. James Hears says, Power of Touch. Maxstat says, Follow my minions. Matthew Vose, Super Violent Fun. Andy Rodriguez, Fun never dies. Neo Gaza says, Precious Assassin's Clone. Darth Cuddles, Innovative Game Mechanic. Jordan C. Hedges, Actually Next Gen. Chris Eason, Fantastic Despite Ending. Josh Crow says, 2014's Licensed Gem. Justin Howard says, Nemesis System Rules. Jim Shepard said, I loved it. Simple but effective. Thanks, everybody. The one that interests me the most there is Jesse Fuchs, repugnantly sadistic and returned. I would have been really genuinely fascinated to have a, a you know, like a 500 word uh, piece of correspondence on that, because uh, to me, it's, you know, it, it, obviously it's got blood and gore and fighting in it, yeah. but it's so it's done with you know it's 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 in that very light fantasy way there's a lot of comedy in it as well so but maybe it's the popping heads and the beheadings and all that sort of thing and the scars it's really Playing interesting it, my uh, my girlfriend did kind of object to one particular thing and it was that the really? the orcs had kind of uh more common lower class uh speech patterns <laughs> and that it felt yeah. a little classist well, that follows the film, so yeah, I suppose if yeah. you were going to criticise, you could say that 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 uh, yeah, that, it's true. Actually, it's um, it's uh, it is something you could level at the film at the movies. Um, I mean, it, it's something you could level at Tolkien. Um, right. It's no secret that Tolkien was a bit classist. So yeah. Um, mm. yeah, that is a problem with the Lord of the Rings fiction, but I think it's a problem with the source rather than the game. Oh well, there you go. That's that's interesting, but yes, Jesse, if 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 you've got any more games that you feel like that about, I'd really be interested to, to hear about it, um, because yeah, I don't think that I don't think we've probably got anyone, you know, we we're squeamish about certain things, but not not that sort of thing. Anyway, um, I don't really have any idea uh, what order to do these summaries in, so I'm going to go with alphabetical order, just like the three word reviews, and let's start with uh, Brian. Would you recommend the game, and what did you make of it overall? Uh, yes, I think. Well, I think I'd be. I mean, after the year we've had with some, some really fantastic open-world games being released, I think I'd be hard-pressed to say, you know, rush out and buy Shadow of Mordor, you know, right now. Uh, I mean, if you see it on sale... It's cheap now, yeah, though. Yeah, if you see it's it on sale, saying. if you get it... Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worth picking up. If you don't get the games you want for Christmas, it's definitely worth uh, experiencing. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, personally, <laughs> it surprised me. You know, it was, it was a Lord of the Rings game that I actually wanted to play after reading the reviews. Uh, you know, what seemed to be a quite flat and featureless environment I thought had hidden depths... Uh, and some beauty to it, especially when you went into, into uh, 
photo photo mode. I mean, obviously, its big contribution, hopefully, will be the Nemesis system. I thought that some created some unique moments of frustration and of personal triumph as well. So yeah, I mean, I hope you know the idea would be yeah maybe go go and play it. But the idea would be that you know when the new Crackdown comes out or something like that, it's borrowed sensibly from what uh, Shadow of Mordor tried with the Nemesis system, and it that that we see that whole uh, element develop and become more fleshed out and become more of a common part of uh, future games so yeah kind of a qualified go and get it i guess all right josh how about you yeah i'm i i think my overall opinion of this game is just that it was a lot of fun um i don't think it's you know up there with my absolute favorite examples of this genre but I just had a huge amount of fun from start to finish. And I think the Nemesis system, as we've already said, seems like a promising new mechanic that I hope other developers take and and do something interesting with. Um, Apart from the Orcs, which you mentioned, Leon, I don't think this game kind of uses the Lord of the Rings license to its full potential. And I think it's perfectly possible to enjoy this game without being a fan of those books or those movies at all. Um, But yeah, I just, I, I had a lot of fun with this game. I think like Brian, it's kind of hard to recommend this game over say the Witcher three or something like that, uh, that's come out this year, just because I think the the Witcher 3 specifically kind of delivers exactly what I'd want from a Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones style experience, whereas this is just a fun action game. But yeah, I I, I if you can get it for cheap or or borrow it off from a friend, this is absolutely a a fun twenty hours to spend with your console or PC. Lovely stuff, Carl Moon. Yeah, it, it, it's, it boils down to the Nemesis system. So right out the gate, I'm not going to recommend picking it up for the last gen um, because I think the Nemesis system does add so much to the experience. And uh, so much so that I would say last generation, we saw two gaming mechanics really come into their own. One would, I would say, was the XP system from multiplayer Call of Duty and Call of Duty 4. And the other would have been the combat system from the Arkham mm. games that we've seen as core fundamentals of so many other games uh, from different developers. I would like to see Nemesis System join that. Um, I think it adds a lot of depth and a lot of reason to come back and for a personal interaction with the enemies, which is lacking in so many other games. Um, You know, Josh is exactly right. This game isn't The Witcher or anything of that caliber uh, that that is something completely special and it's where if you were looking for a game in a 3d open world action adventure genre uh and they both fall into that you know this isn't isn't the one i would recommend but if you're looking for a game that you can just drop into go and fight some enemies run around a bit scale some buildings and have some tricks then th- this generation alone you're going to be hard pushed to find one better at that than this uh it's appeared cheap in a lot of sales digitally already i would expect it to come cheap over christmas and new year you could do a lot worse than pick this up it is a lot of fun yeah uh, i was going to say much the same thing i think it would make a really nice if you do listen to this podcast at the time it comes out i think this is a this would be a lovely game to pick up cheap for the holidays and um, play over christmas unless you know you are you you aren't into the whole um, torturing orcs thing um but uh, yeah i i enjoyed 
really enjoyed the heck out of uh, a large chunk of my time with this game. And now I haven't burnt out on uh, these particular type of games, whether it be uh, I haven't you know, I've played half the Arkham games, I've played two Assassin's Creed games, so I haven't had the same sort of level of open world burnout perhaps as some people. But um, I enjoyed this, you know, at least as much as any of the other examples of the genre that I have played. And it, for me, it was absolutely elevated by by the Nemesis system uh, and all that it brings, both the, the behind the scenes political sort of pseudo political machinations that Josh was talking about, all the way up to the you know the the comedy stuff of them taunting you and the the, the chanting of their names and all that sort of thing. Um, it, yeah, for me, it takes a, what what will be an in, entirely competent and perfectly passable game and elevates it into something that's uh, really yeah that I have quite fond memories of um, until at least the last five hours when the game got stupidly easy and the end boss was limp. But uh, other than that, yeah, cracking stuff. Let's finish with Ryan. Yeah, uh, there are some games that are meant to be played and uh, you sort of just glean the entire experience from them. You're following a story, you're following some sort of progression path like a Mario or Tomb Raider or Persona or something like that. And then there are some games that are entirely contingent upon the moment-to-moment gameplay. So you have the Far Cry 4 and the Just Cause 2, and this game falls squarely in that second camp where, you know, the story is nothing to really, you know, get too invested in, but the the moment-to-moment gameplay and the uh, the stories that you're able to create for yourself as a player, the unscripted stuff that is... Uh, just entirely based on the reactive nature of the AI systems and of the world around you, like all of that makes this game absolutely essential, in my opinion, um, in the way that I think that I'm predicting it's going to influence game development for forever more past this point, and the way that it took a lot of the systems that people were already kind of starting to experiment with and I just really perfected it and spun it in a completely new light. Um, I think that you know, from a historical perspective, this game is essential. Uh, as far as you know, gameplay-wise now, it is a uh, just a perfect podcast game is what I'll call it. It's something that I'll throw on just for uh, you know, the pure kinetic experience of running around the world and, and taking down orcs and just... Uh, that, that fun, like frantic feeling of running into an orc camp and shooting down a beehive and sniping out a, uh, a campfire and watching it explode, the orcs scatter and you pick off the ones that run away. Like all that is a lot of fun and chaotic and wild. And, and it's one that because of the nature of the um, nemesis system, you can uh, intentionally, as it may, it may grow to be an intentional choice because you become so empowered by the end of the game, but you can intentionally choose to die and just watch the cards reshuffle themselves and orcs work their way up the ladder. Um, and so in that way, like it can provide kind of an endless gameplay experience, um, you know, until you achieve your own goals, whether that's killing every orc on the roster or whether that's controlling all of them, uh, just whatever goal you set for yourself, you can go out and accomplish and you can have those uh, these, uh, narrative moments they aren't story moments in the game but they are you know your own personal narrative at any time and so in that way like the game never ends uh and yeah i don't know there's something really special about this and something that makes me want to keep coming back to it 
And I, I think that it holds up well enough gameplay wise that people will still get a kick out of it. And uh, yeah, I think we'll be seeing a lot more of these ideas in years to come. So it's a, a big th- thumbs up from me. I'd say go back and give it a play if you haven't already. Nice. Well, we sort of ended up with possibly the most positive of a, a veritable clutch of positive uh, some summations, if that's the right word. Uh, so just remains for me, Leon, to thank Brian, Josh, Carl and Ryan. Uh, and to tell you that next time, which will be after our seasonal holiday, uh, so we're going to have a couple of weeks off or so, uh, we'll be back with issue 204, in which we'll return to the Hyrule fantasy with the notorious odd one out, Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. But if you can't wait to hear us until then, uh, we'll have a sound of play coming up, uh, a Christmas special, thanks, uh, courtesy of Ryan if we all get our acting done in time and uh, possibly a little some kind of end of year uh, audio wrap up as well um, with contributions from some of the team as well uh, also uh, courtesy of Ryan so you have him to thank for your holiday entertainment but until Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link in the New Year goodbye goodbye